This is an ABC podcast. Many, many people around Australia know the frustration of trying to get a GP appointment. If you live outside a city especially, it can mean very long wait times, even for simple things like getting a prescription renewal. What if, instead, the local pharmacist could prescribe some medications? Would you feel comfortable with that? That's been trialled in New South Wales, but some, including doctors, are worried about it. More on that in a moment on Life Matters with me, Hilary Harper, from the lands of the Kulin Nation. For the next 12 months, New South Wales pharmacists will be able to prescribe oral contraceptives, antibiotics for UTIs and drugs for shingles, gastroenteritis, nausea and psoriasis, all in a bid to meet some of the healthcare demand created by the severe GP shortage. It's already been happening in regional Queensland, where access to primary care is even more strained, and more states could follow suit. But GPs are concerned there are risks, saying, I quote, it is a recipe for disaster. What do you think? Would you see a pharmacist for a health issue like this? Head to our Facebook page, ABCRN, and tell us your thoughts there in the comments. Would letting pharmacists do more things, prescribe more medications, free up some of the strain on our primary healthcare system? Joining me is Professor Andrew McLaughlin, Dean of Pharmacy at the University of Sydney. He helps train pharmacists. Andrew, welcome to Life Matters. Uh, Good morning, and thanks for the opportunity to join the conversation. Oh, it's a pleasure. And with us too is adjunct Professor Karen Price. She's president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. Karen, value your time very much. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Andrew McLaughlin, what will it look like for a a consumer accessing this service? I think for uh, most consumers, this really is an extension of uh, the many different services that pharmacists already provide. Uh, Pharmacists, of course, particularly working uh, in the health system across all of the places medicines are found, including, of course, in primary care, work very closely with uh, our general practice colleagues uh, in providing access to, I suppose, the most common health intervention, which is often a medicine, but often it's it's also about advice. So um, we do know that pharmacists are very accessible uh, to the community. People tend to present to their pharmacists first with health problems, uh, of course, Uh, they're always keen to see their GP. And we do know from our experience in training pharmacists and also in the research we do around community pharmacy, uh, people do present to their pharmacists and seek advice. Often that leads to a referral to their general practitioner uh, or other times, depending if it's a minor or common ailment, there's an opportunity to provide uh, advice and perhaps even make a recommendation about a medicine which would be suitable for them. Well, if we get specific, what are the ailments ailments that will Uh, be involved here? Uh, So uh, I suppose what's been announced for New South Wales is a trial to uh, evaluate the role of pharmacists in providing access to uh, a number of vaccination services. So we know pharmacists are very involved in vaccination already, along with colleagues across the health system. Uh, This would be an extension to a range of travel vaccinations. So that's an important extension for people to be able to access those when they're traveling, uh, particularly as the borders open up and COVID starts to allow people to do that. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction there uh, appropriate evidence-based uh, protocols around the management of urinary tract infections, uh, and already, uh, which is a trial that uh, was completed in Queensland, and as you mentioned, is now uh, accessible to uh, in Queensland for pharmacists to provide that uh, service. And there is a, a broader plan based on a trial in northern Queensland for 
New South Wales pharmacists to conduct a similar trial after appropriate training uh, and credentialing to be involved in a range of common health conditions, uh, which I suppose does align them with what we see pharmacists do in the UK, in Canada, and also in New Zealand. So I think that's a that is a trial which will be evaluated and we'll be looking at the role of pharmacists to provide that care in the community. And I would say hand in glove with our colleagues in general practice and across the health system. So that's an important opportunity about not replacing anyone, but providing an option to people to access the care they need uh, by a suitably trained uh, and accessible healthcare professional. Karen Price, as president of the RACGP, are those things, psoriasis, gastro, nausea, uh, UTIs, uncomplicated ailments to diagnose? No, absolutely not. And um, there's a, there's a, look, uh, it's, it, this is a really complicated conversation because uh, we have two very respected professions who uh, generally work pretty well together, but we've got this um, this uh, looming issue and um, we really do need to have some good conversations about it. Firstly, the, the Queensland um, process was not a trial and that I, I have a letter from Queensland University Technology saying it wasn't conducted as a clinical research trial. It was in, implemented as a clinical service and not research because um, a lot of the GPs up in North Queensland have raised a significant peer review regarding some of the outcomes of that trial and the way it was conducted. And that's been lodged with the university and also with the health um, and recommendations to the health ombudsman. So there's some concerns regarding that. And that's all part of academic research and outcomes and, um, you know, protocols that we have to make sure because we want to keep patients safe. Um, We know from the um, Queensland trial that there were significant issues missed and the AMA report have said, including things like chlamydia, herpes, gonorrhea and pelvic inflammatory disease, which can risk infertility and ectopic pregnancies. So we do have some concerns because uh, whilst uh, our pharmacy colleagues are excellent in medication management, um, they're not trained as well in the differential diagnosis and broad diagnostic scope of a general practitioner. So, Karen, I mean, it's a source of frustration to many women that if they're pretty sure they've got a UTI or they just need a repeat on their contraceptive pill that they have to go through trying to get a GP appointment, isn't it a women's health issue to be able to free up that access a bit more? Look, um, another really good conversation, like we've we've uh, uh, had some national data which said that um, you know, less than 1% of patients who need to see a GP report, they are unable to do so. And I know that in most clinics, um, particularly UTIs, are triaged um, acutely, so they're seen on the day. Now, the other thing is that the with the oral contraceptives, first of all, that's usually a 12-month prescription. And the TGA in 2021 suggested that that should not be um, downgraded to what we call an S3 medication. So we're really happy that um, pharmacists do the minor ailments, treat and refer with the S3 formulary, um, which is all a whole list of um, medications that only the pharmacist can dispense. And um, that's been going on for a long time. And we've worked well with our colleagues on that. But the TGA recommended that, that the um, oral contraceptives stay at S4, which is prescription only, because there are significant safety risks in making that um, an S3. So the state governments have effectively gone around the regulatory processes of the TGA and the the, um, national medicines policy to um, try and uh, make this a, a, a discussion on convenience. Now, we're saying that's, you know, we can't put um, convenience before safety. Though a lot of people in regional areas are going to be saying, well, it's it's a safety issue either way. If I can't see my GP for weeks and weeks, what are my options? 
Well, there are options with some of the innovative telehealth um, companies now, which we have a, there are some of them, uh, some of the governance is challenging, some of it is good. And I think this is where we need to look at for access in this time of need. Um, and they are often run by locum GPs, uh, fellows of our college and fellows of Akram, who provide a uh, prescription and refer the patient back to their usual GP because that's a really important part of healthcare to make sure they've got that continuous loop back to their medical home, if you like, or their regular GP because we know that continuous care provides that, uh, that, that good outcome. And we know that, you know, our good pharmacy colleagues also do the same, that referring back to the GP um, is an important part of keeping continuity of care. So there are telehealth models that are developing that um, are providing that service where you can get a script, um, where you can get a, a, a GP to have a look at that to make sure there's no contraindications and no red flags. We're speaking with uh, adjunct Professor Karen Price, who's the president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, and Professor Andrew McLaughlin, who's the head of school and dean of pharmacy at the University of Sydney. He's involved with training up-and-coming pharmacists about this plan to expand the role of pharmacists in New South Wales off the back of uh, a similar experiment in Queensland to let them prescribe more medications uh, within the pharmacy environment. Really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Text flooding in. I would absolutely ask a pharmacist for advice about any medication. It says one very confident texter. From my point of view they say a pharmacist knows so much more than many GPs. Another from Marg says regarding pharmacy prescribing antibiotics this is quite dangerous in my opinion as different infections require specific antibiotics specific knowledge is required. Um, And Chris says how much is this going to cost? How much will the pharmacist charge the customers for this? Andrew McLaughlin what's your understanding of that uh, that that cost issue will it be cheaper than seeing a GP for some oh, so uh, thank you Hillary and I it's great to hear those messages and also the fantastic comments here from Karen about the really strong commitment to make sure people can access the healthcare when they need it and and I would like to stress that this is not about replacing any service it's really about an option for people and certainly um, you know providing another option to access the medicines they need uh, I understand that uh, the uh, Pharmacy Guild, who is leading a lot of this project, have put out a schedule of um, ex- expenses, if you like, fees for consultation of this nature. Of course, pharmacists uh, cannot access the medical benefits schedule, so it is a fee. Uh, cert- fee uh, pay you know you need to pay for the service, uh, and the the cost uh, for the urinary tract infection study was about thirty dollars for the consultation, and then the cost of the medicine. Uh, typically, most people received a fairly simple treatment there, the same that a GP would offer uh, for uncomplicated uh, urinary tract infection, which is the only group that pharmacists would be looking at. Uh, and that was really uh, probably bought it all within about $40 worth of uh, consultation. So that was the option. Uh, is that going to make things more equitable, though? That, I mean, just, just a quick question, Andrew. Is that going to make yes. things more equitable? If you could see your GP for free, if you could get in, if it was a bulk billing GP, but if you can't, you have to fork out $30. Oh, Hillary, that's exactly why this is just an option for those people who, uh, uh, you know, would like to access it. I would also say that pharmacists are really used to working with people in the community who can't afford to pay for their health care. And, you know, my colleagues in particularly in community pharmacy, I know all the time do come to arrangements never to deny people the care they need and to work out a way to meet those costs. But I don't think it unreasonable that uh, every profession should uh, exercise those two very important uh, opportunities to not only provide ethical 
and uh, responsible clinical care, but also have a viable uh, service that they can have the financial basis to continue to provide that service. So that, that's the reality at the moment. Of course, if uh, a trial was successful, and just to stress, this is a trial that's being tested at the moment. It's not, not for rollout comprehensively. That's why there's careful evaluation of it. And to address the any concerns that uh, I know Karen has raised as well, they'll be very important for governments, for the professions to evaluate. Of course, if it's shown to be successful, then perhaps that's a case to look at how we can have more affordable access to services like this. So I think that's an important frame of reference. The expertise issue seems to be of some concern to our our text message correspondents, Andrew. How much training, how much extra training will pharmacists be getting in order to participate in the New South Wales trial? So thanks very much. And and also it was mentioned earlier that uh, pharmacists, of course, are medicines experts. We train at university for four years and in practice for one year typically. Uh, And then uh, for... UTI training, there'd be an extra module that people would need to do to update that in the same way we've done for vaccination and for mental health first aid and for other services that pharmacists provide, uh, diabetes educators and the like. Um, For the larger rollout of a range of uh, common health conditions that's been done in Queensland, there is postgraduate, a requirement for postgraduate training and a number of universities around Australia will be offering uh, that further training and development. And as uh, Karen pointed out, it's uh, these these uh, uh, there are important aspects to be considered in the training of pharmacists. Um, I suppose, and importantly, this is an extension of what pharmacists do every day when a person presents to their pharmacy and asks them a question about their healthcare. There's an appropriate history taking, looking at their mes- medicines, the the health problems they have, uh, and of course, making an assessment of its severity. Uh, and as was pointed out already. As Karen mentioned, very commonly, we do refer to a general practitioner uh, and in many communities, of course, GPs and pharmacists work closely together. Well, yeah, uh, I'm getting so a, that, you a know, there's real a close sense connection of, there. Yeah, I'm getting a great sense of the respect between your respective professions, oh, Andrew McLaughlin and, and Karen Price. Uh, some questions via text message. One says pharmacists often do have longitudinal relationships with patients. Karen Price, I know that's a concern of GPs that perhaps a pharmacist might not have the, the same ability to build a longer-term relationship with a GP. But, I mean, that's... That's an issue for so many people these days anyway, being able to find a GP and then be able to get an appointment with them to maintain that relationship anyway. Is this a good plan B, given how acute this GP shortage is? Um, no, it's a, a good, simple and um, potentially wrong answer. What, what the issue is between pharmacists and um, doctors is that there is a separation of the prescription of the medicines and the dispensing of the medicines. That means the you know the the skill that the pharmacist uses to dispense that from the from the pharmacy, and I um, think that that is undervalued. Um, but that is separated for a very important reason: is that I do not um, benefit financially from writing a prescription of any sort and giving that to a patient. Whereas in this um, iteration, now the person who writes the prescription um, with very little oversight um, is able to also profit from that prescription in dispensing it. Now, we know in the trial in Queensland that 99% of the recipients um, received a treatment for, anti- for antibiotics in the UTI uh, project. And in Canada, if we're going to look at overseas, they prescribed, the pharmacists prescribed seven times more antibiotics than the physicians did for urinary infection. So we've got we've got some issues regarding the conflict of interest and separating. Now, in New Zealand, the model of prescriptions in New Zealand stated that pharmacists will not be based 
um, or uh, for prescribing in a community pharmacy will not be a community pharmacy owner, will not dispense prescriptions written by him or herself and will not be the primary diagnostician and will not replace the role of the medical doctor. So I think there are some really important issues regarding commercial arrangements um, to protect patients as we have long done with the Australian Medicines um, Standards because this state-run issue, because this is a state-based um, uh, issue, yes. is not in line with the National um, Australian Medicines Policy to separate prescribing and dispensing because that separation actually protects patients. Professor Andrew McLaughlin, what's your view on that, uh, the perception that there might be a conflict of interest over pharmacists uh, prescribing and, and diagnosing, which I have to say is borne out in our text line? Uh, no, I certainly uh, hear that uh, consideration. I suppose I'd bring it back to the very important foundation of what every healthcare professional does every day, and they put the care of their patient ahead of other concerns, and they must be held accountable to that as well. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that every healthcare professional has a code of conduct. Uh, they're regulated. They have also oversight, regulatory oversight about um, their behaviour and, and the decisions they make. Importantly, though, the fabric of a healthcare professional is to, you know, make sure they uh, practice ethically and responsibly to the care of the individual. Financial conflicts and conflicts of interest exist in every healthcare profession. I could run through a long list, but uh, pharmacists deal with them all the time. Uh, I'm sure GPs deal with them all the time when it comes to making recommendations about different treatment options and whether what tests are ordered, surgeons, dentists, veterinarians, you know, healthcare professionals uh, do make uh, decisions about healthcare. But importantly, our code of conduct, our code of ethics means that we put patients first. Of course, uh, there's a concern there, but I'm very confident, not only in the training we give our colleagues, but the commitment that people have to the care of the people they look after, that they're making decisions in their best interest. And of course, it remains a choice for a person to decide if that, you know, let's not forget individuals uh, should always be informed in shared decision-making about what the treatment options are for them to decide you know, what they would like to do for their own care. Yes, yeah, though those choices are often made in particular contexts of uh, health literacy and, and availability and opportunity, aren't they? Absolutely. We're getting a lot of texts from really interesting different points of view. Jill says, on the discussion about pharmacists prescribing, no one's mentioning whether pharmacists are trained to do a physical examination assessment, crucial to many diagnoses. Uh, please ask about that. Andrew, that's not being proposed, is it? It's, it's going to be a verbal conversation at the counter. Yeah, so there's a lot of healthcare that certainly happens around taking an appropriate history. And often, you know, I know my medical colleagues when I worked at hospital, they would say 90% of the diagnosis is in the history. So training people to gather the right information, ask the right questions. And of course, if there's any uncertainty, pharmacists do have the, the great luxury to refer to colleagues, obviously our medical colleagues, and, and will do so where there seems to be any red flags. We're always trying to identify things that might be indicate something more serious, we do that whether it comes to any over-the-counter request, uh, something that is severe or persistent or concerning, cardinal signs and symptoms such as weight loss and fever. These are all types of things that lead to a referral. That's how we train pharmacists. That's how I see pharmacists practice as well. Um, of course, we also know now that there are a range of monitoring devices that do get used in all sorts of healthcare settings, whether it's a, a blood pressure monitor, a, a point-of-care testing uh, device to look at blood sugar, 
cholesterol uh, and, and a range of other functionalities now, which we certainly do train our students uh, to know how to use to ensure that they're appropriately monitoring people when they come back for a repeat medication uh, or, you know, to even there's been some trials looking at uh, screening of different common health conditions, uh, not so much for diagnosis, but of course, for referral onto their uh, general practitioner. And, and I think that comes down to the accessibility of pharmacy uh, and the trust that people have in pharmacists to you know, make those assessments uh, and put the healthcare of the person first. Yeah, quite a few people on our Facebook page have raised the issue of privacy. I don't really want to be discussing my contraception needs over the counter at a pharmacy. Uh, Karen Price, just as we wrap up, if not expanding the role of pharmacists within pharmacies, how do we address, address GP shortages, given that the need is acute right now, so we can't really wait for that recruitment pipeline to be adjusted? Well, we have um, a whole lot of international medical graduates from substantially similar countries waiting in the wings to come over. And we're just trying to remove the government red tape on getting them in there. And I just want to say that um, GPs are the most accessed health professionals and, and patients can get usually in to see a GP. And if not, we've got the um, these innovative models of uh, GP locums on telehealth um, to provide some of those stopgap uh, measures. And certainly in my practice, uh, anyone who presents with um, uh, symptoms that might suggest because it's not always a UTI, um, that might suggest um, a urinary infection, uh, are able to get in on the day. So um, in terms of um, the overwhelm, there's also a pharmacy workforce and we know that uh, many retail pharmacy um, are very busy with four or 500 scripts a day and often only one pharmacist on duty. So it's, it's going to be really difficult to see how this is going to work and we're trying to um, actually fix the health system for once and for all because I think we all recognise there are challenges in workforce shortages across both pharmacists, uh, GPs and nurses um, and we need to fix it properly and not do these band-aid solutions which mean we get a more fragmented system. We, we absolutely know that most healthcare um, needs are actually in the lowest socioeconomic um, uh, quintiles of the population and th they are still not going to be able to access this private um, uh, proposal because it uh, won't be uh, subsidised either on the medicines or on the consultation. So there's a, there's a whole range of whether or not this is accessible to the right people and the overseas data uh, from the UK and from uh, Canada hasn't suggested that it's improved things uh, overly much. So yeah. I think... I think we still have to look at those those issues and uh, I, I, I will be, obviously, the medical profession and the college will be following up uh, very closely. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the rock and the hard place of the co-payment versus the $30 pharmacy fee. Many other questions. This is a debate that will continue for some time, but I very much appreciate you both taking the time to chat to us today on Life Matters. Thank Thanks, you. Hilary. Adjunct Professor Karen Price, she's the president of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners and Professor Andrew McLaughlin is head of school and dean of pharmacy at the University of Sydney. And your texts are burning up our text line. Jay says, I'm a specialist doctor and I'm not outraged by the pharmacist trial. Access for patients is key. Choice is key. Needs good governance though. Some of the medicine is not that hard. And someone else says, just fund and put proper attention to primary health. More GPs, period. And Another, let's revisit the Medicare rebate debate so that more people want to go into general practice. As I said, huge debate. Death to jar sauce is the mantra of Nat's What I Reckon, the online cooking guru. Now it's death to toxic positivity and bon appetit to better mental health. He's going to join us next on Life Matters on ABCRN.
RN Drive with Andy Park. Current affairs. Culture. And everything in between. We don't tattoo hands or necks on young people. My candidacy is about the community. But with respect, you can't have it both ways. I'm not saying vote for who I vote for. I'm just saying know how it works. If words are important, why aren't you calling this a lunar panel? Oh, my word. This is excellent History radio. Monkey. Oh, the evolution of man. <laughs> RN Drive with Andy Park. Today from 6 on ABC RN. Do you remember me uh, hearing me talk about cooking, sweary cooking, with a guy called Nat? He goes by Nat's What I Reckon online, and he has outlawed pasta sauce from a jar. He also throws in a dash of mental health advocacy, which a lot of people have found really helpful over the last few years. He has a new book out, Life, What Nat to Do, still with the straight-up approach, but this time to the kind of unsolicited advice that can often make us feel worse. Cheer up, for example. Give us a smile. How do you feel about comments like that? You can send me a text, 0418 Signs on cafe walls saying, good vibes only. Does that help our collective mental health? Love to hear your thoughts on the text line, 0418 Nat, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. What made you decide to put down the spatula for a while and focus more on the mental health side of things? I suppose that it's um, in the last few years, the journey that the cooking stuff's taken me on um, and all the challenges that have come with lockdowns and crazy COVID stuff that everyone's been through. A lot of the message behind what I've been doing has been to try and, you know, give yourself a bit of a break and something I'm not particularly good at, <laughs> um, giving myself a break. But uh, it's uh, the more I've been talking about mental health stuff and the more I've tried to get involved with with talking about it, I've seen how, how beneficial that can be for, for so many people. And, like, you know, still keeping those jokes and still keeping me in there, I thought it was like it's really just – a chance for me to have a chat about all that stuff and still have a massive laugh and still swear like a sailor, you know? Well, exactly. That that seems to be what makes it so accessible. It's funny. It's sweary. It's, you know, normal people talking about normal things who are also yeah. going through some difficult stuff. I mean, what, what would we find in the book, Nat? What's in it? Uh, well, there's a, all of those, like... All of those old sayings that all that everyone's heard a zillion times that, oh, I don't know, obviously everyone's different and responds differently to hearing things, but being told to, like, sleep more and being told to focus more and stay in school, that everything happens for a reason and, Ugh. you know, the live, laugh, love and all that stuff. I find it incredibly demanding and weird. <laughs> I don't think it actually works for a lot of people and it certainly doesn't work for me and that's kind of why I wanted to get stuck into it because it's not I'm also like try to be conscious that you know that stuff is represents a positive thing for some people and I'll give that a nod too but I'm more speaking to you know people that struggle with struggle with their mental health or struggle with their lives and and struggle to to just have something like like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger said to them and they're like 
<laughs> just come out of ICU, you know? Yeah. I'm, There's a billboard on trams in Melbourne at the moment by Canteen, the, the teen cancer support organisation, and it's got this young woman looking like she's going through some really tough times, and it mm. just says, don't tell me I need to be tough. I thought, that's yeah. a really honest thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I've seen similar posters at the moment here with actually with everything happens for a reason on it. And it's like... It's just doesn't it? It's just not appropriate. <laughs> it's not appropriate, and it's kind of weird. I think it says sometimes that kind of chat, but like, it says more that you don't want to talk about it than it does that you want to help. Like, you don't, you don't have to be, and also like, you don't have to be someone who has all the words and all the conversation ready to go for people struggling. That's okay. It's pretty normal. It's hard to see people struggle, and you know what, what I'm trying to say is that like maybe. Telling someone that it all happens for a reason just maybe isn't that great. <laughs> isn't that helpful for some people? Well, yeah. That... And that you're also super creative. You're such an amazing person and you can, we can do more with our brains. You, you, you can come up with something better. You can care <laughs> better than that. Yeah, you can care better. That's a great way to put it. Well, the, there's a whole chapter called Good Vibes Only, which has mm. always struck me as a kind of exclusionary tactic, like if you're not smiling, yeah. get out of my cafe. What, it, what doesn't, we... it doesn't work. If you were to actually put that, like if you were actually to run that as a set of rules in a venue, the, the way you'd have to get someone out of the venue because they didn't have the good vibes was by having bad vibes. So you've kind of shot yourself in the foot already. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. That's true. Well, I mean, if we are looking at ways to care better, Nat, uh, what are some ways we can think about how we talk to people about how they're going and make sure it doesn't make them feel sidelined or blamed? I think a lot of that stuff is, of course, I'm, I have to be careful to, you know, not represent myself as some mental health professional because I'm not. I'm just like another person with a lot of mental health problems. So I speak to what has been helpful for me and the people that I love and that have spoken to me at times and I've not been well. And I think the most valuable stuff has been to just listen to what's going on. You don't always have to have something to say, you know. Yeah, that must suck. That must be really awful what you're going through. I'm sorry, I'm trying really hard not to swear here. So I can feel the strain in your weird. voice. <laughs> yeah, okay, I've said some weird words to try and fill the gaps at times, so forgive me. I do, but I, I I've been on like, ABCRN for some years now, and it's a daily battle now, trust me. <laughs> it's, um, I think what's important is to, if you care about someone, you care about them. And they, the likelihood is they know that. And if, you, if someone's having a rough go, like a good... Those are just listening and being there. Just be present. Some of the some of the biggest moments of care have come from people that I've never met in my life. Like for example, I was in a, a medical center once. I was in just a random medical center because I thought I was dying. So I was having a really bad panic attack. Someone I didn't know at all just came up and sat next to me, put their hand on my shoulder. I'm not saying I'm encouraging people to go and put their hands on people, but at that moment I was in tears and I was having a, a really, really awful time. They asked me what was going on and if I was okay. And they didn't tell me what to do. And they, they just said, it's all right, you'll be okay, you know. But the, it was amazing. I've never forgotten it. And it mm. was just having that person there that I know cared was incredible. It was some of the best care. I've experienced, and I'm just—I suppose I'm trying to talk to that. It's like you don't have to be some 
whiz bang p- poet that has all the words ready to go. It's just you can listen a little, you can care really well just by being present and you know, ask people what's going on. You don't have to fix it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And Nat, I mean, I think it's really powerful that you are a tattooed, pierced, long-haired, <laughs> hard music-loving guy who is actually stepping up and speaking about these things because, I mean, that is still in our society a pretty brave thing to do. And you talk in the book, um, Life, What Nat To Do, about this idea of toxic masculinity and how it uh, constrains men from talking about their feelings. How can we make it easier for for guys in particular to to let that stuff out because you know as you as you say it's it's pretty awful if you have to keep it in it's a tough one tricky one with fellas i think like that stoic shut up and put up and just get on with it kind of stuff is really damaging really really strange way to live your life it sounds like a really good way to (laughs) for an early death really it's just kind of fill yourself with stress and you know just purge yourself of all care it's just i think i don't i can't again i can't speak for all fellas but i know as someone who could have done better in the past there's like talking about stuff doesn't make you weird doesn't make you a bad person because you're having a hard time if you've got mates who make fun of that stuff i'd suggest you get new mates you know that stuff is I mean, that's easier said than done. I think you're told, you're told there's a pattern that comes with a lot of old nonsense behaviour, a bit like all these old sayings. It's like you're trapped because the pattern doesn't change. You don't change your behaviour. You don't, don't want to because it's too hard. And it also feels unsafe too because you're surrounded by, you know, you're not allowed to feel down. You're not allowed to talk about your feelings because you've got feelings and it's like this, kind of almost becomes this weird phobic space to be in, whereas it's actually, I think, more than often when you talk about what's going on, people can relate to you because everyone, if it's not them, it's someone that they know has been going through a tough time and kind of knows what you're talking about and you don't have to just swallow it and turn into this pressurised, you know, you don't have to turn into a diamond with all your problems. You can talk about it. You don't have to be a tough guy. You can be a tough guy by being a, a gentle and kind and sweet guy too, you know. Well, and it's pretty tough to go and seek help. Like it's, it's a brave thing to do to walk into your GP and go, look, been having it some is, really yeah. scary moments. Um, and, I mean, it takes a toll, doesn't it, Nat? You've been, you've been upfront about stuff. There's a lot of personal information in your, your books and online. How do you um, limit that toll? How do you take care of yourself through this process? Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I could do better. I could do better. I've got an amazing partner and I've got some amazing, beautiful friends. And I kind of are trying in the, in the last few years to kind of work with those things called boundaries and start to, you know, take the space I need when I need it and try and look after myself when I can, you know. Decided I wanted to – the lockdown was really weird and hard. And I don't know that was – was for a lot of people but every day is still a massive struggle for me every single day is really hard work and i'm still on a journey to find the right people and the right thing place to talk about my stuff you know and that's pretty common and i think that's why i feel so profoundly about this stuff and why i find it's okay to talk about it is because it's so prevalent in my life i'm such 
I struggle so much and so often, but I'm also like, it's part of who I am. I'm so high functioning and I say, I crack jokes and I you know, swear a lot and I carry on and that's my way of, of being. But it's, I can speak to that stuff because it's, it's stuff I go through every day and I'm not, you know, I understand that that's really scary for some people, but what's the scariest thing for me is me and not talking about it. Just I feel trapped. I feel even more trapped than I currently feel not talking about it. So having that stuff out there is I don't feel scared of that as much as maybe I should. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's really resonating with our listeners, Nat. The text line zero four one eight double two six five seven six is just lit up. One says, Cheer up translation, shut up. That's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and another says, I could write a book on this. Recent family member diagnosed with stage three cancer and so many people with this toxic positivity perspective say, at least mm-hmm. it's treatable or other things like that. Another says, I'm grieving my husband and the empty platitudes I've heard are quite extraordinary. I also can't stand the saying, be the best version of yourself. No, no, there's <sighs> only one version, says Claire, with all the vulnerabilities yep. and anxieties and loving that life brings. Now, I find mm. it really interesting lately. I've been um, noticing over the last couple of years, just at you know, primary school pick up and drop off, people willing to talk more and more casually about the fact that they're getting counselling, they're getting help, they've been struggling. Do you yeah. feel like there's been a shift at all since the yeah. pandemic about uh, people's openness about this kind of thing? I think so. I think there's been a lot of – I've seen those in relationships in my friends' lives too and, like, the people started to connect with that otherwise wouldn't have. And I mean, you've had a lot of time to just, you know, talk on the phone and maybe acknowledging that stuff is happening a lot more. I know that's certainly the case. There's a lot of – a lot of mental health professionals are very busy at the moment, I think, because people have had to address that stuff a bit more and or at least it's become – Something that, you know, people that may have never experienced anxiety or feeling low and or whatever other, other complicated things they're going through. I think the lockdown would have brought that stuff out or it's really awesome to hear people are communicating about that and making it normal because it is. It's so normal. It's just something we're all going through. Yeah. And as, one way you, or said, another. as you said that, that just sitting with someone and witnessing it and being there and listening and saying it's going to be okay and not trying to fix it is an incredibly powerful thing. Nat, it's yes. been really powerful chatting to you today. Thanks so much for joining us and death to jar sauce. Yeah, right on. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Nat's a comedian, rock muso, mental health advocate and best-selling author. His new book is called Life, What Nat to Do, and it's out now. And I want to give out the lifeline number two because these are difficult things still to talk about and they can bring up some powerful emotions. That number's 13 11 14. And if you want someone who can sit with you and witness and just listen, that's a good number to start with, 13 11 14. That's lifeline. Now, dementia can complicate the mental health picture later in life, but an innovative approach is using the greatest hits of the 40s, 50s and 60s to bring about some big changes to well-being. You're on Life Matters. Where are you tuning in from today? If you're listening from an aged care home, a special hello to you. I hope you get to listen to some good music there. We've all got songs that bring back memories for us. Here is one golden oldie that fits that bill. Oh, you 
You might hear that tune on Silver Memories. It's a radio station that broadcasts into aged care homes. Gary Thorpe is its founder and general manager, and he has just won the Community Hero category in the Australian Mental Health Prize. Gary, welcome and congratulations. Uh, Good morning, Hilary. Yes, thank you very much. It was a terrific honour. Yeah, well, when you're talking golden oldies on Silver Memories, you're not talking about the 1980s, as we might hear on the commercial radio. What kind of songs are popular with your listeners at this point in time? Oh, very much uh, the songs from the war years, uh, talking World War II, um, and a little bit after, into the 50s and 60s uh, now, because we're mainly um, mainly broadcasting to residents who are well into their 80s and over. We uh, just sent a birthday call out to a lady who was 100 uh, the other day. Uh, So, yeah, very much that other end of the age spectrum. And so when we say the 60s, are we looking at the the kind of Pink Floyd end of the spectrum or more of the, you know, the Beatles? Uh, The Beatles, um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, things like that, I think. Things that uh, aren't too intrusive, I think you'd probably say. It's a bit confronting for some of us listening and going, oh, that's that's verging on my vintage (laughs) there. But it's interesting, isn't it, how different music can mean different things to different people? Oh, absolutely. And I think music is just sheer magic in what it can achieve. It's one of the only things that science knows that registers on multiple sites of the brain. So if you've been uh, severely affected by dementia or had a stroke or some head trauma, um, it will damage parts of the brain, but there will usually be a part of the brain, one of those multiple sites that registers music that is still able to uh, recall the, the music and bring back those memories. It's it's quite magical, I think. Well, and you've been looking into the research behind uh, using songs like this uh, to help people with dementia. Tell us a bit about this research into reminiscence therapy. Uh, yes, uh, we started looking into it about, well, around about 2009, 2010. And then in 2011, I was awarded a Churchill Fellowship. So I traveled to about eight centers around the world that were uh, dealing in reminiscence therapy. And they were, some were using uh, music and some were using stories, some were using photographs. So reminiscence therapy is quite broad, but one of the uh, most powerful forms of reminiscence therapy turns out to be music, but it has to be music of your youth. Uh, so our musical tastes are formed usually uh, late teens through to mid twenties. I don't know if you find that, Hilary, but uh, oh, yeah. certainly it's, it's in my case. Um, so it's music of the youth, which triggers sort of memories uh, of past times. Uh, so it's no use playing rap to people in, uh, you know, in an aged care home. It, it just doesn't resonate uh, with them. Uh, but the music of the younger days is really what uh, what brings back those uh, memories and those reminiscences about maybe going to the pictures on Saturday afternoon and hearing Judy Garland sing Over the Rainbow in The Wizard of Oz or um, or going to the dance on Saturday night when you're being courted, you know, by your boyfriend and things like that. Uh, so they're the sort of memories which, uh, which people um, relate to the music 
that they were hearing at that time. Oh, well, I'll better start a playlist now with Cindy Lauper and Duran Duran for when <laughs> I need residential <laughs> aged care. We're speaking with uh, the general manager and founder of Silver Memories Radio, Gary Thorpe, based in Brisbane. But this broadcasts 24 hours a day, seven days a week into aged care centres uh, around the country on a subscription model. Um, we talked a little bit about the reminiscence therapy and the fact that it does have a scientific backing, Gary. Can you tell us a bit about some of the specific improvements that you see in particularly dementia sufferers? Oh, yes. Uh, this is uh, particularly interesting. Uh, the Australian government commissioned a 12-month uh, research project with Silver Memories uh, about uh, two years ago, just prior to the pandemic uh, hitting. So we had about 18 aged care homes, just under 100 residents, uh, all living with some stage of dementia, some were early, dementia, some were you know, quite uh, late stage uh, dementia. And uh, we were asked specifically to look at the impact of listening to silver memories as a, a regular part of their daily uh, activity. And the results were just significant. Uh, increase in well-being, a statistically significant increase in well-being over that 12-month period. But most interestingly, a significant reduction in anxiety and aggression both verbal and physical over that 12-month time and aggression can be a real issue for carers in aged care for people living with dementia uh, so that was a significant uh, result which we were so pleased to uh, to discover. Well, yes, because there's been lots of debate about the use of chemical interventions to try and calm people down, hasn't there? This seems like a, a much nicer intervention. Oh, absolutely, yes. When they had the uh, Royal Commission into Aged Care, uh, the overuse of medication uh, in those instances was highlighted. Uh, so this is a non-pharmacological approach to those issues. Uh, and uh, it's also there's a dosage effect of uh, listening to the uh, silver memory service. So the more it becomes a regular part of the, the routine, the, the greater the impact, which is another interesting finding from that research. There you go. You might get prescriptions <laughs> at some point <laughs> in the future. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, there's a local GP uh, here um, and for quite a few years he was prescribing um listening to silver memories to his elderly residents who uh, elderly patients who were suffering from uh, anxiety in fact it goes back uh, two and a half thousand years to hippocrates uh, of the hippocratic oath fame uh, he would prescribe um, music to his patients he would say go away and listen to the harp for half an hour or uh, do some drumming uh, for an hour uh, that'll get rid of your anxiety. So wow. that's two and a half thousand years ago. So we're, we're gradually catching up. Yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> Gary, I mean, you, you just won the Community Hero category in the Australian Mental Health Prize for Silver Memories Radio. You've been around a while. You obviously you've put a lot of depth into it and, and uh, used your Churchill Fellowship to, to look into it further. But what sparked the idea in the first place? What made you think, I'll start a radio station, especially for people in aged care? <laughs> well, I've... I've been in broadcasting for 40-odd years. Uh, they all haven't been odd years, but 
40 years, <laughs> <laughs> some of them quite odd, um, interesting times recently uh, with pandemic, etc. Um, so I'm also the manager of Brisbane's classical music station for the last uh, 33 years. And so my head is in broadcasting as a way of addressing issues. Our next door neighbour, Jean, she was about 84. She had a stroke and ended up in aged care. And it didn't take long before I really noticed when we visited her on the weekends that she was um, disappearing into herself, withdrawing, becoming quite withdrawn and, and sliding into depression. And that was only after about three or four months. She wasn't into bingo or daytime television. You know, so there was nothing really that was engaging her. She was bedridden with the stroke, so she was stuck in her room. Um, so talking to Jean, uh, it really became obvious that her mind was back in the 1930s, 1940s, when she was being courted by her husband. She lost the husband in the fall of Singapore. Oh. So that that time was very much stuck in her mind as significant in her life. And uh, the music of that time was when she could remember going out to dances on Saturday night with her husband and things like that. So I said to Jean, um, would it be, wouldn't it be great if you, know, you could hear that music all the time instead of just putting on a CD? So um, we decided, well, I decided we should start a radio station. There was no FM frequencies available or AM in Brisbane. So we decided to transmit on a sub-carrier of our uh, classical radio station's FM frequency to little dedicated radios that were locked onto that uh, sub-frequency. So that's how we started just in Brisbane. But then we had so many inquiries from outside of Brisbane, we had to work out a way of uh, getting the signal on the old radio station uh, beyond Brisbane. So that's when a wonderful man, a philanthropist, uh, Tim Fairfax, here in Brisbane and his uh, lovely wife and family, the Tim Fairfax Family Foundation, uh, Tim put up the money to get us up on the satellite. Uh, in the first year, so it's now available via satellite around the country. We're getting some wonderful texts in on this, Gary. Be keen to have the Sex Pistols playing in any aged care place I'm in. It's going to be interesting, <laughs> I think, for the punk generation. <laughs> and it's going to be very interesting. Um, I probably won't be around at that time, so it'll be some. <laughs> Someone else's problem. <laughs> we might have to have segregated soundproof rooms in aged care in the future so that we can all have what we want. And another says, when my dad was in aged care, I volunteered once a week to play music and have a sing-along. Everything from Doris Day to Frank Sinatra, music from their past. Residents who didn't normally speak would sing every single word. Sometimes they could speak a little afterwards. It was incredible. Gary, I'm imagining that you would hear some stories like that from time to time. Because I know you do road shows, don't you? You, you do tours. Yes, we go out on the road. We take one of our announcers. We have uh, announcers uh, in the morning shift, and some of them, I must say, are older than some of the residents you know, <laughs> that they're broadcasting to, and they all have a great time. It's good for them as well as the residents. So one of the um, wonderful announcers, uh, Ronnie, he's from Scotland and a real character, and we take him out and he takes requests before we get out there, and he plays those requests and, and uh, chats, etc. So it's like a live version of uh, Silver Memories on air and uh, they're terrific and we see wonderful results the same as your uh, the message that came through some people who are non-verbal they'll hear the song the foot will start tapping they'll start singing along by the end of the song um, they're awake and alive and just with it again we had a wonderful note pass through to us we were in a meeting uh, with one aged care and provider and uh, 
the daughter of one of the residents passed by and asked to hand a note to us. And the note said, thank you for silver memories. My mother is alive when she listens to it because she was normally nonverbal and non-communicative. And when silver memories is on, uh, she has something to talk about and to enthuse about, and she just feels so much more alive. Uh, another wonderful story uh, we had was in the very early days of Silver Memories, there was a very uh, wealthy property developer here in uh, Brisbane. His wife had Alzheimer's, another form of dementia, and she got to the stage where she didn't talk and didn't even recognise him, didn't know him. And so he gave up his uh, career, a very lucrative career in property development, to stay at home and look after her. One of his neighbours said, why don't you, um, you know, get silver memories, which he did. And he wrote us a lovely note and included a cheque for $5,000 and said, thank you, silver memories. I have my wife back and I have my life back. She just started to um, recognise him and talk to him more mm. just with the impetus provided by the, the music that just triggered those memories. So it's really... It's quite astounding. Yes, indeed. Yeah, lovely, but also I imagine quite bittersweet for people. And I do want to yeah. mention too that we're not suggesting that uh, music can replace a, a, a coherent therapy a support program that uh, that you might get for a loved one with dementia, but it does sound like a lovely adjunct. Gary, it's been wonderful chatting to you today. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Hilary. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about what is a, a service that we're so proud of and we're just so proud that the... Uh, Mental Health Prize was awarded to Silver Memories. Yes, indeed. The Community Hero c category in the Australian Mental Health Prize this year. Gary Thorpe, founder of Silver Memories Radio, uh, which you can look up online. It's a subscription-based service to aged care centres. There is a fee involved, but you can learn more about them on their website. Wow, what a lot of ground we've covered on Life Matters today. Uh, texts on this, Lee says, what a great idea. I've often thought as I get older how important music has been in my life. The idea of living in a community with people who like the same era music as me sounds something to look forward to. At 62, I love the Stones and the Beatles, but also disco and all that 70s Aussie pub rock. Bring it on if it's inevitable, says Lee. And there are always exceptions, says Carmel. I was born in 1941 and those golden oldies would drive me crazy. And just a quick couple of texts on Nat. Nat's what I reckon we spoke to about his mental health advocacy. Toxic positivity is the enemy of healing, says one person. The practitioners of this rubbish alienate those of us with mental health issues. As an ex-soldier and former paramedic, I'm well aware of the difficulty of seeking help. As we draw to the end of today's program, meditating on the later stages of life, we might also be meditating on how to stave off the end a bit longer and how to stay healthy and thriving well into our later years. Well, stay tuned for our next episode because we'll be looking at the measurable impacts of feeling good on our health and longevity. Feeling good comes in many forms and there are some days it's harder than others to tap into that well of optimism and good cheer. How does all that affect our chances of living longer? Learn more with me next time on Life Matters. Hello there, Life Matters people. You matter, and so do I. I'm Judith Lucy, and I'm overwhelmed and living. Remember the masterpiece that was my first podcast, Overwhelmed and Dying, back in 2020? A lot has happened since then. 
And with the exception of me finally getting laid, almost none of it's been good. COVID and the lockdowns made a lot of us look at our lives and think, this sucks. I sure did. So in my new series, I'm asking, can I really change my life? And while I'm about it, do more about climate change. Overwhelmed and Living with me, Judith Lucy, is out now on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.